All right, like I mentioned, we are in Acts chapter 9, and oh, sorry, Acts chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at some things here that went down with Paul while he was ministering in the city of Ephesus. So Acts chapter 19, and we are going to be starting at verse 11, and let's read this together. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Sceva, sorry, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered uh, all them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So basically, these people know how to party. Let's pray. Jesus, we see what is really an amazing passage in so many ways. Uh, one of the most remarkable passages, I would say, in Acts, one of them. And Lord, so we are looking into your word now, and we just want to quiet our hearts and submit our hearts to you, that you would teach us to help us understand what you would desire to communicate to our hearts from this passage. Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work um, freely in our hearts, that um, you would just give me uh, the words that you would have me articulate as we look into this passage together. And Lord, we want to grow in our relationship with you, um, even if that means being introduced to a relationship with you. And we want to get to that point, Lord, where we're recognizing what exactly you're calling us to and that what that relationship looks like. So Jesus, I pray that you would open up our understanding as we look into your word now. In your name we pray, amen. So as many of you know, my wife's first language is not English. My, my wife's first language is actually French. And she learned English several years ago. And uh, despite the fact that she learned English several years ago, from time to time, she'll come across an English expression or a particular English word, and she'll turn and she'll ask me, what does that mean? Or why do you guys say it like that? And it's often, I find more often than not, um, I will just look at her and I will smile because it wasn't a dumb question at all because as English is her second language, it's not making any sense. And so that's why she's asking this question because that's what English is like sometimes. Sometimes we look at language and we're like, this is, I don't understand. Like, I know it's sort of being conveyed, but why was it expressed like that and why was that word chosen? And um, 
So there are times where this happens and it's actually kind of funny to me because half the time I don't even think about it. I just go through my life and I just communicate as freely as I am right now, which isn't always very freely, but uh, I just speak and I do my thing. I don't really think twice about what's being communicated at a smaller, more micro level. And my wife catches it because she's trying to still um, figure out, okay, why are these expressions the way that they are? And we definitely have some odd expressions, don't we? Think about things like free gift, right? Free gift. Is there any other kind of gift other than a gift that is free? Or we say things like advanced planning. Or we talk about uh, necessary requirements. Or we say things like hot water heater. Or we say things like completely naked, as if there was any other way to be naked, but (laughs) completely naked. And on the, on the news recently, um, as much as I'm not much of a wordsmith myself, I tend, to be, uh, I tend to poke fun at reporters a lot, especially on their live shots when they don't have a script to follow. And I, I often point out the, the, the silliness of some of the things that they communicate. And the other day I heard they were talking about a fatal fatality. And then, and then and I'm, like I said, I'm not much a wordsmith, so I'm as guilty as anybody else. In an email this week, I found myself writing to this person. I said, I would like to reiterate again. And I proofread it, like, wait, reiterate again? How about just say again? Or I would like to reiterate. So I modified the email. And then this one is, is actually interesting to me. I live, I live in Culver City. And uh, I don't know if any of you know this, but technically the name of the city is the city of Culver City. It's not Culver City, it's the city of Culver City. And um, it's on all, it's on the official seal of the city, of the city, and it says city of the city, the city of Culver City. And you know, and I guess, I don't know if that's because Culver City is surrounded on all sides by Los Angeles, this massive city of four million, or sorry, uh, 500 square miles LA has. And Culver City is just five square miles. So maybe like, there's like this, this um, inferiority complex that Culver City has, and it has to reiterate that they're actually a city twice within their official name. But um, anyway, that's how, that's how sometimes we, we, ha- we have these expressions and these words and these ways of communicating that sometimes don't quite make sense. Uh, we don't even always catch it. But when I was first looking at the text, our passage this week, and I was first looking at this and I was examining this, I found the wording rather interesting and I thought that this was actually one of those cases. I I was reading this and I was thinking, man, is this one of those times where the text is is unnecessarily being repetitive or repeating itself? It speaks of these things that are referred to here as extraordinary miracles, as if there was any other kind of miracle, right? Is there any such thing as a miracle that's not extraordinary? But it, it speaks of these things that are extraordinary miracles. And it describes these, these extraordinary miracles as being done by God through Paul. And um, the, so then, if these are extraordinary miracles, that means these miracles were not ordinary extraordinary. They were extra extraordinary. And these were apparently miracles on a whole other level. And we see here in verse 12... It says, even, and this is the crazy part, even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, crazy stuff, right? Not, we don't see a lot of that happening in the New Testament. We certainly don't see a lot of this happening in our everyday lives. 
And this passage has suffered disgraceful abuse, to be honest, in the hands of opportunists. And um, for, you know, for you may have even been aware of this. You, for a small fee, you can send your money to a TV preacher, and 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 he will, in response, send you a prayer cloth that he has blessed, and maybe if you're really lucky, dipped in the Jordan River, and uh, and then he'll, you know, as he sends you this prayer cloth, it will bring healing into your life, and anywhere where you have a physical affirmity, you will be healed upon receiving and touching this prayer cloth. And at first I was like, oh great, you know, I'm seeing this, like, you know, Paul's touching aprons and handkerchiefs, and they were actually, we, we consider them to be the aprons that he wore when he was making tents. We learned that a few weeks ago, that he was a tent maker. And then even as he was laboring, these handkerchiefs were sort of like sweatbands. And so people would kind of rip them off and they would steal them and, and people were getting uh, healed and, and evil spirits were being cast out. And, um, and so I was thinking, how do I, how do I possibly explain this? Because this is so far out of the norm. But thankfully, it's actually easily explained by the fact that these miracles are described in our text as extraordinary. So this wasn't the norm, and we're not to consider them as being the norm. They were very atypical, even as miracles go. And so quite simply, in this particular time in history, God, being a God of incredible grace, worked in these moments in these, in these very extraordinary ways. So there's... There's no doctrine to be built here. There's no practice for us to adopt. These are just very atypical, abnormal, extraordinary circumstances. Now, that means, you know, if in case you, you read this, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna gather my, my favorite handkerchiefs and I'm gonna go down to, you know, UCLA Medical Center and save everybody and, and heal everybody. It, it doesn't necessarily work like that. But speaking of these TV preachers, and their prayer clause, there are always going to be people that seek to take advantage. And, in, and here we see in Ephesus that there were those that sought to do the same. We see that here in our text. So there were these seven brothers described as sons of Sceva, which was the, the high priest. And they knew about Paul's ministry in there in Ephesus. He had been there for quite a while preaching Jesus. And they decided that they want a little piece of the action. Now, I don't know exactly how the plan came together, but maybe one of them grabbed all his brothers after their family dinner or whatever, and he pulls them all aside, and he says, hey, we know how this works. We're sons of the high priest. We should get in on this. We should get in on this. We should get, become a part of this action here, and um, we can perform exorcisms like Paul does. And then, you know, one by one, they, they, they start just warming up to this idea and they start getting excited about the potential for this. And maybe one pipes up and says, I know, we could, it would be amazing. We could be like Ghostbusters. We can call ourselves Ghostbusters. And, um, and they confer amongst themselves and they decide on a phrase that they would settle on to, to, um, that they would, would use to sort of uh, something that would sound authoritative enough so that when they came across people that were possessed by an evil spirit, they could sort of confront this evil spirit in a very authoritative way. And they agree on this, and they settle on this phrase, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And that's their magic phrase that they've decided to use. And, and of course, how hard could it be, right? Just... Say the, say the magic words, say the phrase, and cool stuff will happen. And, and for some reason, I, in my mind, I sort of just sort of envision this com conversation happening among them, almost like a bunch of potheads trying to figure something out. 
But they come across this opportunity and they're like, okay, this is it. You know, and they started elbowing one another and like, go for it. No, you do it. No, you do it. No, you do it. This is your idea. No, you do it. And they're daring one another to step up to the plate and they had their script down. They had seen Paul do it. What could go wrong? And so one of them steps up and reads from their script that they had prepared. And as he does so, the next two seconds feel like an eternity as they wait to see what will happen. And so he says the magic words and the evil spirit responds to them and says, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? You're fake news. <laughs> and this is the ultimate burn. This is the ultimate diss because the evil spirit's like, oh, yeah, I totally get Jesus. And I'm aware of Paul, but I don't know who you are. And this diss quickly gives way to fear. And then it's like, dang, what did we do? What did we just do? The guy who confronted the evil spirit starts pointing over his shoulder at his brothers, blaming them for uh, making him confront them in this way. Obviously, he couldn't blame the devil for it, so he had to, he had to blame somebody else. And then things get completely nuts. And it says there in our text in verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Crazy, right? This guy, possessed by this Holy Spirit, pulls a full-on Chuck Norris on them, takes out seven guys all at once, and the brothers did what they were supposed to do, or at least what they thought they were supposed to do. And the next thing that they know, they're running out of the house, beat up and naked even completely naked. <laughs> and they sought to drive out the evil spirit, but instead of driving out the evil spirit, the evil spirit turns the tables on them and actually drives them out. And we've seen this before, and here we see it again, that the demonic realm is real. And they're not just goofy storylines for movies, but the demonic realm is real. And I preached on this back in April as we were going through Acts, um, we were looking at Acts chapter 16 in a message entitled Clash of Masters, if you want to check it out. I'm not going to get into deep tonight about what it means for um, this man to be possessed by this evil spirit and to beat up these seven guys. So if you want to get more into you know, thoughts on understanding the demonic realm, I'd refer you to our podcast for that, Clash of Masters. But uh, what's interesting about this is the brothers didn't even claim the name of Jesus themselves. But, they, but this is what they said. They, they proclaimed the, the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So these brothers, these sons of Sceva, the son of the high priest, they were not followers of Jesus, nor did they know him. The evil spirit evidently knew Jesus more than they did. But it's interesting, though. They, even though they didn't know Jesus, it wasn't like they were anti-Jesus or opposed to Jesus they were at least okay with Jesus enough to exploit and invoke his name, but they had no relationship with him. They were opportunists. They were just posers. So they accepted Jesus to the degree, but only for their desired outcomes. And this is how a lot of times, this is how a lot of people view Jesus. Even when people don't even know him, we will associate with Jesus in such a way that we think that he will give us what we want. 
and sort of we, we sort of get on the, the Jesus ferry to bring us to the island of bliss and desired outcomes. And we sort of treat Jesus as sort of this connecting flight to the, des- to the destination that we want to get to. And we hope that he will help us get the job, win the game, land the contract, get the part, get the girlfriend, get the boyfriend, fill in the blank, give us whatever we want. And so we will associate with Jesus in this way to get what we want so that our desires can be fulfilled. And so that really kind of just reveals that we sometimes will just view Jesus as sort of a good luck charm. And really in, the, in, the, in a similar way to these seven brothers, we, we don't view Jesus any differently than a means to an end. It's really just us just using him. We might even go to church or involve him in our, in our lives because we hope that he will somehow make us better people or our lives will be enriched in some way. We even go through these religious practices and God is not pleased by that. It doesn't score any points with him because Jesus for them is just a means for an end. Or I should say Jesus is for us in those moments just a means to an end. We're just using him. But that's not how it's supposed to work. We cannot use Jesus when we feel like it and then discard him when we don't. Now, you might think, I'm not discarding him. That's not my attitude toward Jesus. I like Jesus. I pray to him all the time. And I go to church sometimes, and there's, there's these different ways that I involve him in my life. But the reality is, is that we do discard him if we're only using him for when it's convenient for us or when it benefits us in some way. Because we only say yes to him in some areas of our lives, and we don't say yes to him in all areas of our lives. Because the reality is, is that he is the Lord of all or not at all. We can't just take Jesus in parts and take the parts we like and discard the parts we don't like. And in doing that, what ends up happening is we sort of create a Jesus of our own making. And really that's not who Jesus is, which is why when we do this with Jesus, it's an actual rejection of really who he is. Jesus is enough for all of us, but he's not enough for some of us because we have this tendency at times to partially reject him, or sorry, I should say partially accept him. But if we're only partially accepting him, it means we're fully rejecting him. Jesus is to be received as he has defined himself, as he's, as he's revealed himself in scripture, and that's what, who we are to understand Jesus to be. And it is that Jesus that is calling us to a relationship with him. Jesus is not the means to an end because he is the end. Jesus is not the means to an end because he is the end. He does not get us to where we want to go. He's, he doesn't get us to our destination. He is the destination. He's not what brings us to our desire. He is to be our desire. And the difference there, although it may seem close, the difference is everything. Now, it's not just people that have a, a smaller under, or a lesser understanding of Jesus that make this mistake or get this wrong. We see the church making this same mistake. Even the church gets this wrong. Over the last few decades, we have seen how evangelistic strategies have, that, that have been adopted by the church at large have been focused on getting people to heaven. That's just one example. 
and these evangelism strategies are focused all about heaven. And so we ask the question, like, if you were to die today, would you spend eternity in heaven? If you died today, would you go to heaven? You can ask that question and engage in that dialogue and never bring up Jesus. And so we see here that the church has even slipped into this. Now, heaven sounds like an amazing place and a place we want to be. And so to some degree, that's understandable. But the saddest part, the church, in miscommunicating some of this stuff, the the saddest part is that the church almost makes heaven as a substitute for Jesus. In some of these conversations, we almost make more of an emphasis and a bigger deal about heaven than we do Jesus himself. Because he didn't die to give us heaven. He died to give us himself. And we have to be careful about about that subtle substitution that takes place. So in some ways, we've become our own worst enemies in the way that we convey these things and we send the wrong message. Because heaven is not the reward. Jesus himself is the reward. Now here in our passage within the people of Ephesus, um, they've seen these extraordinary miracles that have been taking place, that demonstrated the power of God. They even, uh, even the evil spirits we see knew and respected Jesus' authority and his power. We see how these, these brothers, these posers were dealt with, something that had never happened to Paul. So there's a difference there in the way that the evil spirits are relating to Paul and the way that these evil spirits are relating to these posers who sought to just borrow the name of Jesus as if that were, were to give them some sort of claim of authority over these evil spirits. And we, and we see now that this realization is taking place as word is spreading throughout Ephesus that this has happened. And we see here that Jesus is, 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 is really ultimately in their minds establishing dominance as far as they're concerned. Jesus had told his disciples before he ascended into heaven, he said, and Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we see that playing out here. And then in verse 17 of our text, it goes on to say, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. So when all this goes down, it's literally a come to Jesus moment for the people of Ephesus and for the people there. And I would even describe what happens next as sort of a spiritual awakening. There was a greater awareness and recognition of God, a greater awareness of his greatness, a greater awareness of his holiness, and we see that it it manifests in three ways, and we can see that in our text. First of all, in verse 17, we see that fear fell on them all. That's what it says. Fear fell on them all. It's one of the ways that this, 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 this spiritual awakening manifests. And fear fell on them all because uh, now things were getting real. To whatever degree they were unaware of these things, now this is getting real for them. They had just watched these seven men get torn up by this evil spirit, and they were pretending to, uh, and that's because they were pretending to operate with the power and the authority of Jesus. And, and in this moment where they, they see all this going down, the evil spirits were not messing around, obviously. And they recognized and respected the power and authority of Jesus. And so all this goes down and everyone's like, wow, okay. Fear falls on them all because it's like, wow, this is, this is a thing. The second thing that we see happening is that the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. We also see that in verse 17. And in this context, to extol means to magnify, to declare something as great, or in really plain, simple terms, to make something big. 
not because it wasn't big already, but to treat it as big and speak of it as big. And so that's what they're doing to the name of Jesus. They're making it big. They're magnifying it. They're declaring this name of Jesus as great. And the third thing that we see is they become sensitized to their sin. We see that there. They become sensitized to their sin. Verse 18, also many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So through all this, they have a greater sensitivity and awareness of their sin. And when it talks about 50,000 pieces of silver, I don't know about you, but that immediately made me want to go, I want to find out how much that is. How much is 50,000 pieces of silver? So uh, one piece of silver was about a day's wage. So the value of the books they burned was equivalent to 50,000 days wages. Now, I don't know how much money you make in a day, but to put that into perspective and give you an idea of how, how much that might be in today's standards, if we took California's current minimum wage, which is $10.50, that would be $84 a day. So we're talking times 50,000, we're talking $4.2 million in today's currency. That's a lot of money. That's the value of these books that they burned. But I think it's interesting that, there was, that, that this is their response to this and that they, 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 they respond to this greater awareness of God and the spiritual awakening in this way. Notice that they didn't take these books and realize, well, I guess we're done with these. They kind of did that, but they went, they went as far as to burn them. They didn't, just, they didn't just set them aside. There was a finality in burning them. Their value did not confuse the issue. There may have been some that thought, well, what if we you know, kept just a few of them? Or what if we kept some of them and we sold them? Because you know, after all, we could help a lot of people. If we sold these books, we could help the poor. We could help support the church. There may have been some that thought that but there's this finality in, in utterly destroying them and separating themselves from them. And even, even their value was not something that was uh, desirable to them or attractive to them. And it wasn't enough um, that their value confused the issue or interfered with their resolve to, to be done with them and to put them away because no, they had to burn. And this prevented in burning them and utterly destroying them, prevented the people from returning to them that temptation that might happen. They, they, they didn't exist anymore, so they couldn't return to them. And uh, also what it would do in destroying them, it, it takes the books out of circulation completely. So as they're becoming sensitized to their sin, they sought to separate um, from anything that would interfere with their relationship with God and anything that would hold them back or anything that would be associated with the spiritual realm. And so... Um, Sometimes, you know, we're talking obviously about their response, how they became sensitized to their sin, which implies that at some point they had become desensitized to their sin. And it's not like we're just specifically talking about pagans here or those that did not know God, even speaks of them as being believers. But there's times where we can become desensitized to our sin or numb to our sin. I would put money down that if I gave you 15 seconds, you could probably think about something in your life that you know is not right, even though you're a follower of Jesus 
and it might be an area of your life that you've become desensitized to. And maybe you only think about it when you think about it, but it's not something that nags at you. And it might be something that you willfully engage in a lot. Where I see that happening a lot is, um, well, there's, there's many ways it, can take, it could take its forms, but it happens a lot when it comes to um, sexual immorality and how we conduct ourselves outside of marriage and things like that. Um, there's other ways that we can become desensitized to it. Maybe it's the, the decisions that we're making where we're using people and we're doing unethical things or these so-called um, permissible sins where we make excuses, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's okay that I do this. But instead of it horrifying us, which it should, these sins become somehow justified in our hearts and in our minds, and it changes the way we think about them because we're becoming desensitized to them. And our sin is no longer phasing us. And when that happens, when we're no longer phased by our sin, it's a really, really, really bad situation. And it's a bad sign because it, it reveals a lack of spiritual vitality. I would not say it reveals spiritual deadness, but I would say it reveals a lack of spiritual vitality. Now, you also probably know what it's like to really wrestle with something. If you're a follower of Jesus and sin has crept into your life in some way, you probably also know that struggle and that battle. And I want to just tell you, don't be, don't be discouraged. The fact that you're struggling is a sign of life. The, the fact that you're struggling shows that you actually care, that you haven't become completely desensitized. But I don't want you to walk away hearing those words and think, okay, I guess I'm good, I can keep struggling. <laughs> no, you have to do away with that because you are on the path towards desensitization, towards your sin, and a lack of, an, a lack of awareness towards your sin. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he said this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, and who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, this exchange can take place. And we start to justify things, and we start to tell ourselves that certain things are okay, or God hasn't crushed me yet, so it must be okay. And we mistake God's patience and his long-suffering for his endorsement, and that's a bad road that we're on. And really, what's more sad than seeing, and I get this a lot as a pastor, one of the saddest things is not so much seeing someone struggle in their faith or struggle with sin. One of the most saddest things is when you see someone that has just completely given up and they don't care anymore. And you might know someone like that, where maybe they were a friend of yours or someone um, that you've known, and you remember those days when they walked with Jesus, and now you look at their lives and they're not at all walking with Jesus, and you wonder, and you ask yourself the question, and maybe you've asked them, what happened? I remember who you were. We used to talk about Jesus, and I know about your relationship with God, but now your life is completely different. What has taken place? And it's not just about pointing the finger at other people. Maybe we have lived that too. Maybe you're in that spot right now, and you landed here tonight, or maybe you're beyond that. Maybe you've experienced that in your life where you found yourself in that situation living for Jesus. Things happen and you start becoming desensitized to your sin and giving yourself over to sin. And Maybe you went through a season and now maybe you're back on track. I don't know. But I think we all know that this happens. And sometimes we're just tired of the struggle 
and we just give up. And let me just say, that's where grace comes in with other people. Grace doesn't mean we ever wink and nod at sin. Grace is, is speaking of how we address those things and how we talk about those things with other people. A lot of times with some sin issues, we are quick to point the finger and throw judgment around and condemn and all of that, and we completely forget the struggle that's involved in that, especially if the person is a profess professing believer. That doesn't mean we, we just ignore it and we let them off the hook because, well, it's probably hard for them, so I'm not going to say anything. But it has everything to do with the way that we address those things. It has everything to do with the way that we are their true friend in that moment. It says everything about the way we talk to them and how we pray for them and how we come to them with understanding and with grace instead of with condemnation. Now, we want to love people in that moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, speaks of love, but... 1 Corinthians chapter 13 also says that it, love rejoices in the truth. And so there's no, um, there's no uh, contradiction between love and truth. But we are called as believers to speak the love, or to speak the truth in love. But that's the reality. We know this. Sometimes the struggle is just too much. And sometimes it's years on end. And we get tired and we give up. And there are other cases where it might not be so much that we gave up. Sometimes we will just, we will just conveniently change our theology so that what is sin in our life is no longer sin anymore. Well, you know, I used to believe in this, but I want to do this, and so I'm going to change my theological beliefs so that they will be more permissive of these things that I want to do. It's awfully convenient and wrong, obviously, and that's a very dangerous thing to do. But there's something else that's happening. When we've lost the awareness of our sin, it also must mean that we've lost the awareness of the holiness of God. When we've lost the awareness of our sin, we've become desensitized to sin, it's because we've lost our awareness and we've become desensitized to the holiness of God. Isaiah, who we quoted a few minutes ago, he had a vision where he saw the Lord sitting on his throne, surrounded by angels. And the angels were saying this. They were, this is what they were declaring. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is, filled, uh, is full of his glory. And then Isaiah said, this is his response. Woe, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. So here we see the Lord of hosts sitting on his throne. The angels are singing his praises and declaring who he is. And Isaiah's response is, I suck, basically. He's just like, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. That's what gave him that awareness, the Lord of hosts. And, and this is what we see taking place in Ephesus. As all this stuff is going down in Ephesus, the people there become more aware of their sin and they become more aware, ultimately, of the holiness of God. And now that Jesus was it for them, there's no more room to mess around with all this stuff. 
There's no more room for these things in their lives anymore, and so they seek to discard them, and we see that taking place. Now, if we view that the holiness of God gives us a greater sense and awareness of our sin, that's not all it does. The holiness of God should not only give us a greater sense of awareness and sensitivity to our sin, but think about this, especially for those of you that know Jesus. The holiness of God should lead us to a greater sense of awareness of the beauty of the gospel. If we're so aware of God's holiness and our response is, wow, that is God's holiness, that is his greatness, and I, in contrast, am a sinner like Isaiah, I am undone, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips, it should, the, the beauty of that is it tells us on this side of the cross how beautiful the gospel is. It's God's rescue plan for us. It's the means by which we could have a relationship with this holy God. This holy God that at first glance we seem so far off because he is so great, because he is so holy, and we recognize in that moment, moment our brokenness and our sin, and we feel like there's this gulf between us that nothing can, can bridge that gap, but it's Jesus who ultimately um, dies on the cross for our sins so that the, the holiness of God does no longer, and our sin no, no, no longer has to explain our separation but it's the beauty of the gospel that is God's rescue plan that we can have a relationship with God because we've been entrusted with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if his holiness and his perfection reveals our sin and our brokenness, we should be able to better appreciate how far he went so that we didn't have to stay separated from him. And this is why this is why how we understand Jesus and who we, who we view Jesus to be matters. Jesus is not the means to an end where we just use him for our purposes, where we chase down our desires with Jesus, hanging on to him as if he's our good luck charm. Jesus is the end. He's not the means to an end. He is the end. He's not to be the one that gives us our desires. He is the one that is to be our desire. He's not the one that helps us get to where we want to go. He is our destination. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that we could have a relationship with him. And so my hope and my prayer for us is that as a community following Jesus, first, that we would be that, we would actually and truly be a community following Jesus, that we would grow in our relationship with him to the point that we remain sensitive to our sin, which means we remain sensitive to his holiness, that when we're confronted with the reality of his holiness, that it, it works out in our lives through um, a recognition of fear, not, not, a, not a, a, a bad kind of fear, but sort of a healthy fear that, that this stuff is serious, that it would result in us praising him and extolling him and magnifying him in our lives and worshiping him, and that it would result in a greater sense of his holiness, which just leads us back to the cross, and then that can become something that we celebrate, and that through that, that we can become, uh, that we could be drawn closer to him. That's my prayer.
because I don't want us to just miss Jesus and all of this stuff. I don't want us to just sort of view the Christian life as these rules and regulations and these things that we have to do to make God happy with us and to sort of check off our boxes and make sure he's okay and these religious things that we jump through, these hoops that we jump through, but it's really recognizing that Jesus Christ died on the cross to give us himself. He, he died on the cross to give him himself because he is our reward. He is our prize. And the greatest thing that he ever did for us was that not anything he gave us, but it was in that he gave us himself. And I pray that for us as a church community, that is something that we can continually continue to seek to mine the depths of. Let's pray.